I don't think that any article of the Christian faith has been more subject to any more misunderstanding in history than the concept of purgatory. The Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us, all who die in God's grace grace and friendship but still imperfectly purified are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Part of the problem is that we have no clear image of what purgatory is. Heaven and hell are described in Scripture, perhaps not literally, but at least figuratively. We get a a sense of what is meant by these states. Everlasting joy with God and the angels and the saints, or everlasting fire and damnation. Purgatory, on the other hand, is a derived doctrine. It's more implied by the very nature of what we believe about the four last things. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. In the book of Revelation, where we are given the clearest depiction of heaven, we are told, but nothing unclean will enter it. Yet we know that all have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God. All of us are unclean, stained by some sin. Yet we have the promise of Scripture. If then we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Thus, there must be some way that our souls, despite the many sins we have committed, can enter into heaven. The first solution, you might say, is the Gnostic one. This was one of the earliest heresies that the church had to fight against because as the Christian faith spread, it encountered the Hellenistic world. Greek philosophy had a tendency towards dualism, going back to Plato and the pre-Socratics. Dualists believe that the world is divided into the forces of good and bad, or light and dark. Matter or material things, such as human bodies, were considered bad or dark, and thus lowly. Intellectual or spiritual things were considered to be part of the light, so they were higher. Things like ideas, music, mathematical expressions, the human soul. So there was this tension posited between the body, which is bad, and the soul, which is good. Now, superficially, that can sound kind of like Christianity. And that is why many dualists were initially attracted to the Christian message and why Gnosticism grew in the early church. The Gnostics believed because that our bodies were lesser things, we could treat them indifferently. We could sin in the flesh without consequence because salvation came from gnosis, special knowledge or spiritual insight that made our souls holy in spite of our bodies. But while Christianity does indeed draw distinctions between the flesh and the spirit, we don't see these things as inherently disconnected. Rather, the human person is a composite of body and soul. And what we do in the body affects our soul, which is why our soul is stained by the sins that we commit with our bodies. We have the words of St. Paul. 
Do you know, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been purchased at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The other solution to this dilemma is what we might call the Protestant one. Martin Luther wanting to draw the sharpest distinction between faith and works, and between grace and merit, and between the goodness of God and the depravity of man, taught that because of the work of Christ on the cross, our sins are no longer applied to us, even though they remain in our souls. Hence, there is no possibility of interior renovation produced by sanctifying grace. The soul is not truly pleasing to God. Rather, our justification is merely extrinsic or external. That is, God forgets about our sins because he is pleased by the justice of Christ. Of Christ. Luther himself said that the human soul in heaven is like a snow-covered dunghill. We remain a dunghill of sin, but the merits of Christ covers our sin in the sight of God like a new fallen snow. But the problem with Luther's position is that it begs the question of why God would even think we are worth saving in the first place if we are merely dunghills. What Luther failed to grasp is that through justifying and sanctifying grace, Christians can become truly sons and daughters of God, meaning that we can truly become holy, not merely appear holy, or be holy by proxy, because it is within our nature to be free from sin, as were our first parents, until the darkness of the first fall. Sin is not our nature. Holiness is. And beginning in baptism, but continuing throughout our lives, we gradually approach Christian perfection, particularly through the sacraments. When we receive the Eucharist, we receive sanctifying grace, which allows us to repair the damage done to our souls by previous sin and grow in holiness, assuming that we have confessed our sins in the sacrament of penance. Yet for most people, the church posits, this process is incomplete even at the end of our earthly lives. Hence, God's grace continues to transform us even in purgatory. The term purgatory means a place where purging happens. Purgatory is where we are purged of our sins and our attachment to sins in three ways. First, for unconfessed or unacknowledged venial sins. Second, for the temporal punishment of sins that have been forgiven but have not been expiated by penance. And third, for our attachment to sin through which we are not fully converted to the love of God. Unlike those who die in the obstinacy of mortal sin, for for whom only hell awaits, God's grace allows those deemed worthy to enter heaven, but not yet fully prepared for it, a kind of makeup test. But it is important to understand that purgatory is not a place where the soul chooses heaven or hell. God has already decided that a soul in purgatory will enter heaven. It is simply a process of transforming that soul so that it enters heaven 
clean of the sins that stained it on this earth. We have the words of Christ. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will not reject anyone who comes to me. A person is in purgatory because they have chosen God, and God has chosen them. It is a one-way street to heaven. Yet we still say that the souls in purgatory need our prayers. We celebrated All Saints Day yesterday. This is All Souls, the commemoration of the faithful departed. I'm wearing black because we are here, in effect, to mourn. To mourn for these souls because they are still undergoing the journey to God. Even though they are guaranteed heaven in a way that we, who still inhabit this world of temptation and sin, are not. Yet we are here to pray for them. Because our prayers still cooperate with God's grace to help the souls in purgatory detach themselves from the sins they have committed in this life. And the sooner the souls in purgatory attain heaven, the sooner they can begin to intercede for us. In praying for them, we are made more holy and more worthy ourselves to enter heaven. And then the cycle continues. So we mourn, but we do not regret, because we know that the souls of the faithful departed are in a better place. None will be lost. You know, I mentioned at the beginning that purgatory is the subject of more misunderstanding than any other thing in our faith. The church defines purgatory narrowly, as it is something that is implied rather than explicitly taught in Scripture. But it must be true because of what Scripture teaches about heaven, about sin, about the human person, and about God's mercy. But because of this paucity of imagery, some become trapped in an image laid out by certain Catholic thinkers or artists, perhaps. And they take that to be the official church teaching, when on some of these details, there is none. So do not be misled. For example, some fire and brimstone Catholics in the Middle Ages depicted purgatory as being exactly like hell in the torments suffered by the souls, accepting only that the souls in purgatory had the hope of going to heaven, whereas the souls of the damned did not. Some modern thinkers, by contrast, have suggested that perhaps purgatory is kind of like a therapy session with God, in which we are helped to see the reality of our sinfulness and how this is incompatible with heaven. But I prefer simply the depiction given by C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. He says of one man entering purgatory, Pains he may still have to encounter, but he will embrace those pains. He will not barter them for any earthly pleasure. It is a pain, but it is one that is joyously embraced. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.